0: You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. We're starting today to take a look at the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to that book. And um, to accurately, not just to accurately teach the book of Ephesians, but To understand the message and the implications, there are two different uh, portions I want to read first to get us started. Uh, This book has some of the most remarkable promises, insights, revelation. Um, It's probably Paul's highest insight about the gospel, although he doesn't completely detail it. He actually says in the book of Ephesians, these things I have shortly written. So there was, I mean, Paul was uh, such an amazing revelatory man. But um, to understand the book, we need to read Ephesians 1, verses 2 and 3. Is that appearing there? May God himself, the heavenly Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, release grace over you and impart total well-being into your lives. How many of you like that? How many of you like a little bit of total total well-being? Ooh. Every spiritual blessing. Read that with me. This is so profound. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm has already been lavished upon us as a love gift from our wonderful heavenly father, the father of our Lord Jesus, all because he sees us wrapped into Christ. This is why we celebrate him with all our hearts. And so it's so important, and we're going to continue to sort of um, bring this note, concept, idea, or insight home, is that in verse 3, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm has what? Already been lavished upon us. What verb tense is that? It's the past tense. It's something that has already happened that Paul wants us to discover. And that really is the secret to, to the Christian life. We're going to find out it's more about what's been done than what we're supposed to do. Matter of fact, um, how many of you know what the second most published printed book, maybe in the world, but at least in the Western world, how many, how many of you know what that book is? After the Bible, it's... Anybody? Anybody? The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. It's like an 18, I believe, an 18th century book written in the 1700s. And it's about John Bunyan's spiritual wrestling over the gospel and over legalism and over how it is you actually um, function successfully as a Christian. And in that book, he contrasts... Um, a person living under the law with the person who understands the unmerited grace, the freedom, uh, the provision of God. And so he wrote this little poem that I think is very interesting, and it reads this way. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Another song the gospel sings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. And <clears throat> so he's comparing living under the law, trying to earn a place in God with the reality of the gospel, is that God in Christ has already provided for us every single thing we need. Now, the problem is, and we're going to look at this over the next um, probably five or six weeks, and uh, a lot of these Bible verses are going to be fed into the home groups for consideration. But one of the problems is we have all these promises and we have uh, found it difficult to access or obtain them. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Nobody. Wow. Uh, everybody's good, huh? Walking on water this week, I see. <laughs> How many of you have had trouble living life as a walking, talking manifestation of Jesus in the earth? Okay. All right. I had to. All right, just checking. Well, here's the problem. Also in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, we read this. Verse 10. Is that there? It was not ready for prime time, church here. You know, I'm asking, you know, I'm not flowing. It's, you know, I told the worship team this morning, hey, listen, if worship tanks, it doesn't matter. We're good. We got next week, right? got 52 of these every year. (laughs) Might throw in a couple extras. Finally, everybody hear that word? Finally. So there's a conclusion here at the end of Paul's letter when he talks about the glorious reality of what it is to be in Christ. And actually that term in Christ, if you're not familiar with it, you need to read through the book of Ephesians. It appears there like 30, 31 times. It's very prominent. Insight, everything we have as believers, we have because we have discovered by the grace of God, we have found ourselves in Christ. Now, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the... Oh, sorry. Power of... Okay, I'll do this. I know how to do it. Power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil... For we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood. We're not wrestling against CNN. We're not wrestling against people on the Internet. People are not our enemies. They're just confused. Okay. No. Yeah, we're not fighting people. We're fighting the things that influence people to make bad choices, bad decisions for we do not what we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places therefore take up the whole armor of god that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand and so you've got to contrast these two realities God has done this amazing thing on our behalf in Christ that gives us the capacity to have absolute victory in every single area of our lives as a free gift, not as something we can earn. Matter of fact, the more you try to earn it, the less likely you are to enjoy what God's done. And Paul actually goes in, one of the reasons... The gospel is the way it is. It's because God's the great giver, and we did not deserve the gifts and graces He's given us. And so He does not. He has made the gospel and the reality of being a believer in such a way that no man can boast about their accomplishments in Christ. Read that book; it's an amazing. So, God has given us unlimited resources to live victorious. Joy-filled life. He's lavished every spiritual blessing upon us, but we're in a war zone. We must arm ourselves with all the armor God has provided. So what we're going to do is we're going to start looking at first of all what the Lord's done. And over the course of the weeks, we're going to come to chapter six where we look at the armor. Um one of the things I was struck, one of the things I was struck by. When I was reading these last verses here in um, the Passion Translation was how it is the the devil or evil forces affects us. What it is they're trying to do. What's their methodology? How many of you like to know that? Actually, when you see his methodology, you are going to be able to see how influenced you are by him as opposed by the Lord because we really we're living in a war zone it's important to understand so here's how Brian Simmons in the passion translation um, translates verses 10 through 13 now beloved ones I have saved these most important truths for last be supernaturally infused with strength through your life union with the Lord Jesus stand victorious with the force of his explosive power flowing in and through you verse 11 put on God's complete set of armor provided for us so that you will be protected as you fight against the evil strategies of the accuser what does he say that we stand against the evil strategies of who the accuser the accuser that's the devil's primary strategy is to accuse now It begins to show you in our society how much of the media is actually under the influence of who? The accuser. The accuser. How much are you? I mean, we have to answer this question because when you become an accuser, when you become a slanderer, you're taking the wrong side and it will cost you. It really will. It really will. For we have overcome the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and we love not our lives even unto the death, it says over in the book of Revelation. So let me continue here. Fight against evil strategy of the accuser. Your hand-to-hand combat is not with human beings but with the highest principalities and authorities operating in rebellion under the heavenly realms. For they are powerful class of demon gods and evil spirits that hold this dark world in bondage. Because of this, you must wear all the armor that God provides so you're protected as you confront the slanderer. For you are destined for all things and will rise victorious. So that's the enemy's basic methodology of holding people in trouble. People, people that deal with shame. Why do they deal with shame? Because of things in their past, the enemy has taken either things that have actually happened or things that have never happened and have accused and slandered inwardly each one of us at some level. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You're not good enough. You didn't go far enough. You went too far. You know, on and on and on it goes. And the more we listen to his accusation, the less victorious we are. Um, so here we go. My uh, New King James... My, <laughs> I w- almost went right over into tongues, didn't I there? <laughs> the introduction to Ephesians in my New King James Bible reads this way. Ephesians is addressed to a group of believers who are rich beyond measure in Jesus Christ, yet living as beggars. And only because they are ignorant of their wealth. Since they have yet to accept their wealth, they'll relegate themselves to living as spiritual paupers. Paul begins by describing the contents contents of the Christians' Heavenly Bank account adoption, acceptance, being sealed by the Holy Spirit, life, grace, citizenship. In short, every spiritual blessing. Drawing upon that huge spiritual endowment, the Christian has all the resources needed for living to the praise of the glory of his grace. Very prominent phrase in Paul's letter. Paul's letter to the Ephesian church contains his highest and most profound revelation of the gospel. But it's called a hidden mystery. Ephesians 3 1 through 8. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, that was Paul's message, the dispensation of the grace, how that by revelation God made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already. So the brief thing Paul wrote was the first uh, two chapters in his letter by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promised in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I like that phrase, unsearchable riches of Christ. I really like that. The unsearchable riches. Riches of Christ. The Passion translation reads this way: "For the unsearch- so let's say that unsearchable, unsearchable riches, riches, unsearchable riches of Christ. It means the unfading, inexhaustible riches of Christ, which are beyond comprehension." Now, Paul calls it a mystery. And as you begin to listen this morning, or maybe you've already discovered this, if you begin to read all that Paul said, it sometimes just makes you scratch your head. Because the gospel needs to be a revelation to our hearts, not just information in our minds. How many of you know people that can quote all kind of Bible, uh, but you wouldn't go to the 7-Eleven with them? Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, I'm sorry. Moving right along. No, it has to come by revelation. Paul said that I might know him. Know him, not know about him. Know him. The reality of the gospel is you don't meet a doctrine. You meet a person. Paul wrote this from prison. See, this actually fits into those first two portions of Scripture I just read to you. Number one, we have these amazing promises. But number two, we're in a war zone. These things aren't automatic. We have to understand what we're up against to uh, access and live in the reality of what God has provided for us. You don't get there. By legalism. You don't get there by self-effort. You don't get there by academics. You don't get there by education. You don't get there by uh, sh- sheer grit and determination. You receive everything you, see- you receive from God as a free gift by faith. That's good. That's the Bible. Come on. So Paul writes this amazing letter that That gives this panoramic view of the glories, benefits, freedom, liberty, inexhaustible riches of Christ from a prison cell, in other words, Paul himself has to live out the fact that each of us must appropriate what God has for us in the context of our own challenging circumstances. Paul wrote that letter from prison. All right, now, <clears throat> Paul, do you hear my voice go up? Usually your voice goes up when you didn't know what you're talking about. So <laughs> what Paul was saying here. The Paul spent between two and three years in Ephesus preaching. And it was the longest period of time, the longest stretch of time he ever spent in any church in his entire ministry, ministerial ministry career. He was a traveling apostolic evangelist. That's what you might you might call him. He was a revelatory man. He went throughout the ancient world, um, particularly into urban areas, because that's where the gospel took root, uh, and he preached his revelation. And so. What was this Ephesian church like? I could read almost the whole chapter of uh, Acts 19, but let me just so, sort of hit some high spots. Here's what happened. When Paul arrived at Ephesus, guess how many believers he found there? Twelve. There were only 12 believers in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a gateway city to all of Asia Minor. If any of you are familiar with um the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, all those are in Turkey or Asia Minor or this whole part of the world. And so when Paul arrives at Ephesus, he finds 12 believers um, who had been baptized into John's baptism. Um, And so when Paul finds them, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? No, they replied, we've not even heard of a holy spirit and it reminded me of a story. Ricky Skaggs told, uh, how many of you know who Ricky Skaggs is? Country music, really strong believer. Um, I was, uh, I was in Nashville at one of his concerts recently and he, um, he told this little story. An evangelist was talking to this Christian lady who lived way back in the Appalachian Hills And he asked her if she'd been filled with the Holy Spirit, had she received the Holy Spirit. And she said, why, we got the Holy Ghost when it first come out. (laughs) I have a terrible habit of laughing at the stuff that I think is funny. I just think that's... Oh, we we got the Holy Ghost when it first come out. <laughs> so they said, No, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul says, Then what was the meaning of your baptism? And they said it meant that we should follow John John the Baptist's teaching. And um so so Paul says, Well, here's what John was teaching. He was teaching that you should turn from your sins in his baptism. And he pointed you to the one who was to come, Jesus, the anointed one. So when those 12 understood this, they were baptized, it says, into the authority of Jesus, the anointed one. And when Paul laid his hands on each of the 12, the Holy Spirit manifested and they immediately spoke in tongues and prophesied. And so that's what happens when Paul arrives. He finds 12 believers he realizes they haven't been taught to the degree. They don't know as much as they could know about the Lord. He baptizes them. They get filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues and prophesy, which I think is amazing. And then for three months, Paul went to the synagogue. This is what he would do whenever he preached the gospel in the town. He would go to the Jew first, and they would generally reject him. Then he would go to the Gentile. So for three months, he spoke in the synagogue, and reasoned and persuaded concerning the kingdom of God. That was Paul's primary message. But when they rejected the message, he left. Then Paul spoke daily for two two years in the school of Tyrannus. And I read somewhere, I don't know how they knew this, but they said he probably spoke from like 9 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. He did that for two years. And the result was, and this is so amazing, All who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So because Paul went to Ephesus and found 12 people, he baptized them in water in the name of Jesus. They were filled with the power of the Spirit. He went to the synagogue. They ultimately rejected him. Then he went to this school. Um, Tyrannus owned it, had it. I'm not sure what that's all about. And for two full years, Paul in an unhindered manner taught and preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. And here's what happened. Unusual miracles. God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. And so God began to move in this ancient seaport, which was the um one of the gateways to all that part of the world. People were baptized in the Spirit. People were empowered. Paul could teach his revelation in an unhindered manner to the result that during that two-year period and because of the, I believe two things happened. I believe the miraculous power of God and the teaching that Paul had, which was God is your father and he loves you, took root in a heathen culture to where people, actually they say one of the reasons Christianity thrived in the ancient world was that Christians would take care of the sick when nobody else would and Christians would take care of orphans when nobody else would take care of orphans and they would not take people to court when they were being sued. They began to have an exemplary Love and character demonstrated. Um, I think when you were here a couple of weeks ago when Sean Foyt came, when Sean Foyt goes into regions that don't know the gospel where people have been terribly mistreated and to begin to love them and tell them about the goodness of God and demonstrate the goodness of God, people respond, people's lives get touched, and their lives are changed even in dramatic ways. And so Paul, this one singular man went to Ephesus within a 2-year span of period, period a 2 2-year span, a period of 2 years, all of Asia heard the gospel. Wow. Okay, here's what happened. There were there was um, a Jewish, uh, not a Christian, but there was a Jewish priest, not a high priest, but a recognized priest, and he had seven sons. This is all in Acts 19. You need to go read it. It's amazing. Well, his seven sons watched Paul cast out demons in the name of Jesus. So they began to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, only they had a little problem. Let me read this. Now, there were seven itinerant Jewish Jewish exorcists, sons of Sceva the high priest, who took it upon themselves to use the name and authority of Jesus over those who were demonized. They would say, We cast you out in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches. One day when they'd said those words, the demon and the man replied, I know about Jesus. I recognize Paul. But who do you think you are? Then the demonized man jumped on them, threw them to the ground, beating them mercilessly. He overpowered the seven exorcists until they all ran out of the house naked and badly bruised. Now, here's what happened. All the people in Ephesus were awestruck, both Jews and non-Jews, when they heard about what happened. Great fear fell over the entire city. We don't really get this. Over the entire metroplex of Ephesus. This story about these seven sons of Skeva, prominent in the community, got beaten naked and bloody by a demonized man because he infuriated him by using the name of Jesus when he wasn't authorized. I guess that's what you say. Many believers publicly confess their sins and disclose their secrets. Ooh, man, you know God's touched you when you were... Disclosing secrets. Large numbers. Say large. large. Okay. Large numbers of those who had been practicing magic took all their books and scrolls of spells and incantations and publicly burned them. When the value of all the books and scrolls, scrolls were calculated, it all came to several million dollars. And I think I've been in a move of God. That's amazing. The power of God caused the word to spread, and the people were greatly impacted. So, the next thing that happened was um, one of the seven wonders of the world was in Ephesus, and it was the temple to Diana, a goddess. And one of the major financial resources, or one of the major businesses, in that area were silversmiths and these silversmiths would make different objects and idols dedicated to Diana and Paul's gospel was so effective that one of the primary silversmiths brought an accusation against the Christians and it stirred up the entire city to the degree that they all rushed into <clears throat> this big amphitheater which held 24,000 people and shouted and screamed for two hours, Great is Artemis or greatest Diana of Ephesus. What had happened? Paul's gospel was so effective that it disrupted the economy of the city. To the degree that the entire, listen, this is what it says in Acts chapter 19. The entire city was in tumult over this big uprising by these businessmen in that silver industry. So they grabbed two of Paul's associates. Matter of fact, if you ever study um, what happens to people that hung out with Paul, you would never hang out with Paul. You usually got drugged, beaten, or shipwrecked. That's what Paul's friends had to look forward to. Well, Paul didn't even get drug into the middle of that melee, but two of his friends did. They wouldn't let Paul go. The other believers wouldn't let Paul go in there. Well, finally, they quelled the, the rebellion, and Paul left town. Now, Paul's effectiveness was bad for business. People had filled that stadium, and for two hours, shout, great is the goddess Diana. That theater held 24,000 people. That's amazing. That's amazing. Do you hear my voice go up? That's amazing. Here's the question I have. Why was the Ephesian church so effective? Go believe the book of, of Ephesians. It's Paul's message. It's the revelation Paul had of the goodness of God. Who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what our inheritance is. He began with only 12 believers. Within two years, all of Asia Minor, all of Turkey had heard the gospel. So potent and powerful was his message that it affected the business community, it caused a huge riot. And I believe he taught the believers how to love. Do you know it was a very radical concept to believe, number one, that God was your father? And number two, that he loved you. That was a very radical concept in Paul's day. Now, when I look at Paul's message, I want to go through about eight or nine of these verses. I want us to look at what it is we actually have access to as believers. First of all, we've already seen. That God has already given us every conceivable blessing. In Ephesians one three, we read that earlier. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm has already been lavished upon us as a love gift from our wonderful Heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, number two. We are already accepted. So many people are looking for acceptance. Ephesians 1.6 six. I just have to read a portion of this to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. That phrase accepted in the beloved is only found twice in the New Testament. Only shows up two times. Let me read to you the first time. It's in Luke one twenty eight. Accepted in the beloved. What does that mean? In Luke 1, 28, Now in the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Verse 28. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. How many of you recognize and don't get enmeshed in Mary worship, Catholicism parts? How many of you have to acknowledge Mary was highly favored? She was chosen of all humanity to bear that supernatural birth, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. Well, when the angel met her to describe how God looked at her as this one singular chosen individual. He called her highly favored. Where else do you find that? The only other place in the Bible. I just read it to you by which he made us accepted or highly favored in the Bible. So there are only really, uh, two people. God describes as highly favored Mary and every other believer. Only two times that phrase is used. That's how accepted you are. There's nothing you can do to be accepted. You know one of the things we have to learn? Actually, one of the phrases John the Apostle uses in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John is the term beloved. Say that with me. Beloved. Break, break that down into two words. Be be loved. Be hey, listen. Listen, be loved. Be loved. Everybody has trouble with that. Can, can you see that? Everybody has trouble with being loved. I, I can wake up in the morning and think nobody loves me. And then I remember, oh, there's Don over there. I think she does, so I'm good. No, but being loved, beloved. John would call people beloved, be loved. Everybody, I think, wrestles. How many of you wrestle with that? Yeah. Look to somebody you either like or don't like, depending on who you're sitting with, and say this to them. Be loved. Be loved. Be loved. You know who else had trouble being loved? It was Paul. How do I know Paul had trouble being loved? Because he preached to himself that God loved him. Do you know where that is in the scripture? I can read you the verse. You want me to read you the verse? Well, let me quote it to you. I'm crucified with Christ. This is Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. What What, what is What is Galatians 2.20? That's another letter, right? So Paul's writing a letter to people, writing a letter to people. In that letter to people that he's writing to people, that he's not writing to himself, he's writing it to people, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Loved Me gave himself for me. Who in their right mind would write a letter to somebody and talk about love me? Gave him? Didn't even say you, didn't even say us. What was he doing? Paul reminded himself that he was loved. How much was he loved? He was so loved that God gave his son explicitly expressly for him because he loved him. Galatians 2.20. Now, if the great apostle Paul had to remind himself, you know the world does not remind you that God loves you. It's because the world in many, many ways is under darkness. It's under the accuser. It's under manipulation and control, not under goodness and kindness. That 's why we should really stand out, but we're already accepted. We already have an inheritance. Ephesians one eleven in him also we have obtained an inheritance. We have obtained something that we haven't actually accessed to a full degree. Do you understand that that's the revelation. Ephesians two: five we were made alive, even when we were dead in trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What else has He done? He has raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places. Ephesians 2 6. He raised us up together. He made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. Here's what that means without our effort, without our work, God put us in a place. By the gospel, by the work of Jesus, a place of security, a place of victory, and a place of rest. I actually believe to be seated in the heavens means you can access what's in that realm by faith. What's in that realm? Every single thing we need. Maybe you see it, maybe you don't. Maybe you understand, maybe you don't. But that does not mean you cannot access from the heavenly realm by faith things you need. Things other people need. I can remember a number of years ago preaching, and I said, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Who has a hand? Everyone with hands, show me your hands. Kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. How many of you need something? How many of you need money? I actually said, how many of you need some money? People said, I need money. I said, let's do this. Let's reach into the kingdom of heaven and lay hold of whatever we need. Okay, the natural man says, that's stupid. The spiritual man says, that might work. So here's what happened. A lady told me after the meeting, my daughter was broke. She was with me. I really didn't have anything to give her. So when you said reaching into the kingdom of heaven, I reached into the kingdom of heaven by faith, an act. And I put what I got, I put my hand on her pocketbook and released it. Well, any normal person would say, that, that's insanity. Except for the fact that when that woman stood up to walk out with her daughter, a total stranger came up to her daughter and handed her a check for several hundred dollars, said, I just felt impressed of the Lord to give you this money. That's true. That's real. There's a different way to live. There really is a different way to live. Now, crucified, I've already Read Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. That's a whole teaching. Justified. Romans 3.23-24. through 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You've already been justified. Made free. How many of you know you're already free? You know that thing that bounds you up? You're free from it, by the way. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, past tense, has made me free from the law of sin and death. Here's a great one in Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What that means is Satan's been defeated. Healed, 1 Peter 2.24 who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Delivered, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, has delivered us. Or another verse says he has translated us from the kingdom of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption. Let's say that. Whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, why are all of these promises in the past tense? Well, in John 19, 20 on the cross, let, let me let me say this. Some of this is revelatory. And by by that, I mean... To understand some of what God has for us, we need to have concepts that help us see it. You see what I'm saying? Um, And so when you read John 19, 30, when Jesus was crucified, just before he died, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. Now, I heard Derek Prince teach years ago, that word finished means completely complete or perfectly perfect. And so from that one statement, people have begun to understand and it it's arguable to a certain degree, but they have begun to understand that in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, every single thing that this is true, whether you get it from John 19, 30 it's a different question, but in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, God finished Everything that needed to be accomplished on our behalf to heal us, deliver us, translate us into his kingdom, justify us, bless us, accept us, etc 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 that 's what Jesus meant. this has been done i 've accomplished what I came to do um, ephesians two ten begins to open this up we For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, let me walk back through that because I want you to see that. First of all, that word workmanship is the word poemo. You could say, for we have become his poetry. Or we have become God's poem. Recreated in Christ Jesus for what? good works. Now what are good works? Well, good works could be walking an elderly person across the street like a boy scout kind of a thing, and that's a good thing. Or good works is being kind to people. But another aspect of good works are works of power, works of, you know, miracles. All of that is in that same category of good works. So, where was workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? What purpose? Good works. Then it says this, which is amazing, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does that mean? Well, to me, it gives me this concept that every single challenge I face, every aspect of my calling that I need to accomplish before I was ever born, Let's put it in these terms. God wrote my life story out in a book beforehand and created the capacity, the power, the timing, the setting before I was ever born for me to accomplish all of those things. For he has prepared beforehand Those good works that we should walk in them. It's a tremendous, tremendous revelation. Now, I've thought about this. When did God do that for us? Do you know the Bible says that Christ Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world? Some of this is is mind-boggling, but here's what I really believe. I believe before we were ever born, before we ever had a need, before Adam and Eve ever fell, God had absolute provision for any situation that would ever come up. He already created it. He already had, in some mysterious way, Everything necessary for that to manifest in our lives as we begin to live by faith. And so I have this question: why did God rest on the seventh day? How many of you know God doesn't sleep? Why does He not sleep? This is not a trick question, He's not tired. What If God's not tired, why is he resting? Turn to your neighbor and say, why did God rest on the seventh day? I don't get it. Henry, ask your mama that question right now, son. <laughs> Here's my response. Why did God rest on the seventh day? There was nothing left for him to do. What? There was nothing else for him to to do everything we would ever need. He already did. He wasn't tired. He was finished. You listening to me? This is a great idea. This is a great concept. And, and, the, and, the, and the reality of it is that idea is flooded throughout the gospel. Finished work, justified past tense, blessed past tense, accepted, Past tense. Listen, it goes this far. Glorified and sanctified are also past tense promises in the book of Hebrews. Every single thing we need, we find in Christ. It's simply a matter of in a warfare zone, learning how to access all of these promises. What day was Adam created on? Sixth day. What was this first full day? The day of rest. When Watchman Neat, and and I highly recommend his book, Sit, Walk, Stand, his study of the book of Ephesians, he, he, in a very simple but straightforward way, describes the Christian life as functioning this way You sit first, then you walk, then you stand. What does that mean? When you're saved, you're given everything you need. You just don't get it yet. You're put into a place of rest. You can't sanctify yourself so God sanctified you. You can't justify yourself so God justified you. You can't bless yourself so God blessed you. You don't really even accept yourself so God did that for you. You can't heal yourself, so he's provided that to, he's done all of these things. And then he says, sit down there and receive and enjoy. And from what you receive, now walk out what I have given for you to do that I actually prepared beforehand. Now, here's a problem. John 5, 17, Jesus says, now I've said God's through working, right? Here's what Jesus said. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Well, isn't that a contradiction? Well, well, you know, welcome to the spiritual realm, right? But no. Jesus said in a further chapter, verse 6, he said, this is the work of God. What's the work of God? This is the work of God, that you believe in him, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So we start the Christian life by being seated, by being at rest. Ooh, I've got to finish up. By being saved, justified, healed, having everything lavished upon us except the crucified raised, on and on and on it goes. But let me tell you what else Paul wrote in that book of Ephesians. He wrote two prayers. What did he pray? That God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him that God would open the eyes of our understanding, being lightened, that we may know what is the hope of his calling. Because Paul realized this is a profound insight. You don't just get this academically. You don't just get this by rote. He prayed that God would open our eyes to see what he had done. He prayed that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. That being rooted and grounded in love, we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge so that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, we're going to stop there. Because if I were you, I would have questions. So we're trying to answer some of them next week. Actually, if you have questions... Write them down and bring them, and I'll try to find someone who can. Uh... <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let me remind you, we do have healing prophetic teams. We're glad to pray for anyone here, but I want to close this way. I want to close by having us all stand, and let me pray the prayers that Paul prayed. Paul said, therefore, I make mention of you in my prayers. And Lord, we agree with Paul. This is our prayer that the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give us, let's say that Lord, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. Lord, we pray that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened Eyes of our understanding would be enlightened that we may know what is the hope of his calling and know what is. The, and what are the riches of the glory of our inheritance and what is the exceeding greatness of your power toward us, which you worked in Christ. When you raised him from the dead. This was in verse chapter 3. Lord, I pray that we may be able to comprehend. Comprehend with all the saints. Lord, this is for all of us. What is the width and length and depth and height? Comment. I'm X. I'm leaving the prayer. I'm going to make a comment. And then I'm going to come back into the prayer. Four dimensions. We're praying for a four-dimensional reality in a three-dimensional world. Width, length, depth, height. This is beyond the natural. Back in the prayer. We pray that we might know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now here's a benediction. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, Father Let your presence, let your power, let your revelation come. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, folks, God bless you a ton. Go be nice to somebody. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.